It's time to rethink everything, to redo the rulebook, to explore smarter ways to work and rediscover what's possible. Time for a fresh take on how technology and creativity are changing the way work gets done. Welcome to The Big Rethink. Today's episode is about technology, innovation, and national defense. Our guest, Skylar Moore, Senior Defense and Foreign Policy Advisor. Skylar, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me on, Barry. So uh, let's take uh, care of some really boring stuff first, a disclaimer, just to protect us. Uh, and to our listeners, as a reminder, all opinions represented within this podcast are personal and do not represent the views or opinions of any government organization or entity. So there, Skylar, I said it. So let's hit it. (laughs) That's right. Had to get that out of the way. So uh, let's hit it. I'm going to repeat back some things I just pulled off your resume. You can give me the eye roll anytime. So undergrad at Harvard, master's in security studies from Georgetown, previously the director of science and technology in the USDOD, intelligence officer in the Navy Reserve. So I have to ask, what made you decide that technology would be a building block for your career? You know, it really was never my initial intention to to come into this field. I mean, I I really fell into it. And I th- I think probably the best way of describing it is just I've been trying to chase the most impactful problem. Um and it's how I fell into the national security field. It's how I've I've fallen into the technology specific area of that is just I wanted to work in a field where I felt like I, there was the most kind of intractable problems that I could wrap my hands around. And national security for me was was the first step in terms of solving something, hopefully, that would then enable so many other things that I really cared about, whether it's education or social justice. Um, and then technology specifically just happened because when I was working in national security, I very quickly realized that technology was the defining factor of what would, of what would create advantage on a mm. battlefield. And so it just, it, it very, um, unexpectedly, but naturally happened <laughs> in this field. So, so fair to say then, and I'm, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but correct me if I'm wrong, because a lot of what we'll talk about, is going to be hinged on, you know, your expertise. And so is it fair to say your expertise is in technology and national defense? Yes, that particular intersection is where I, that's my happy place. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be in trouble. I mean, after researching, I'm like, yeah, no, Barry, sorry. So, so let me ask you a few questions then. So from your expertise, your experience, what are some of the biggest technology innovations in the last 10 years? You know, it's a fascinating question to ask in the context of national security, just because we really wrestle with the challenge of bringing new technologies into the department. And so I will I will kind of answer and kind of not answer your question, <laughs> um, because, again, really, some of the biggest things that have that have changed the game for the department are not new. There are things that have existed in commercial sector for decades, for literally decades, and it has simply taken us this long to try to integrate them. Simple things like cloud. We're still trying to get our contract in order so that we can actually leverage cloud, which is an insane thing for anybody on the commercial sector um, to think about. And then even for technologies that are maybe a little bit more um, specific to the department. So directed energy comes to mind. So using um, lasers for either defense, for uh, communication, there are a number of applications. Directed energy is something that we've been trying to do for decades. 
And it's something where people keep saying it's what's going to change everything. It's going to, you know, the cost per shot is going to go down, go down. The, um, the efficiency, the effectiveness of what we'll be able to do is completely different. But the reality again is that we've been trying to do it for decades. So when you say, what is the thing in the last decade that has really changed the game? God, I wish that we could pick something up in the last, actually <laughs> the last decade that really would change our game. <laughs> Well, I, I kind of been there, and I, you know, I noticed like the failure, pain, especially when you see progress, just in the pure idea of what technology does. But I don't have that purview into what you do on the government side, just being almost a hundred percent in the private world. Just going back then to you know the notion of what you do for threat assessment. Then, how has the role of threat assessment been changed just by technology in general? So it's. You know, it's interesting because from from our perspective, threat assessment is this whole global geopolitical um, huge, uh, yeah, piece that you're trying to pull in. And really, I mean, I think it's a very simple aspect that's that's made it challenging. But it's just the sheer amount of data that is available now. At a certain point, and I'm sure that this is reflected in commercial sector as well. But at, at a certain point, too much data is the same as none at all. Because if you do not have the ability to to analyze it, if you do not have the ability to extract meaningful information, meaningful intelligence out of the information, then it's the same as having nothing at all. And so we are increasingly drowning in the amount of data that's available that would potentially allow us to have this kind of exquisite picture of what the threat environment is. But the real challenge for us is synthesizing it into something that's actually meaningful. And, and I'm so glad you said that because we have reams of data but it's making it actionable that kind of drives me crazy, right? And they're two, two totally different things. So, you know, again, because I like to compare with you as the guest, like the difference between, you know, high level between private sector and then what you do. So compared to private sector, what are some of the biggest challenges you see in evaluating and procuring the technology that you evaluate? <laughs> God, where do you start? <laughs> <laughs> It is just, it, it's such a, a stunning problem that I have dealt with both when I was in the department in my current position, um, supporting Congress, working on these exact same issues. It is just, it's it's one of the, I, I wish I could say that the number one threat to the United States was an external, you know, enemy that we're facing or some nefarious actor. Um, and in so many ways, it's our acquisition system. I mean, my God, if we were to export our acquisition system to other countries, we might be able to really create some substitute damage. <laughs> um, but it really just, the the real interesting difference, I think, between what we face in the def- on the defense side and what maybe commercial sector does is the the responsibility um, to the to the taxpayer, frankly, mm. that exists in a way that does not in others. So what that means is that we are required by law and absolutely should have this very careful approach to the way that we spend money and the way that we kind of manage this. Because um, because at the end of the day, it you know if we make a mistake, it has global implications, and if we make a mistake. It's the taxpayer's money. It's our responsibility is ultimately always to, um, to the citizens of this country. And so it means that we have to put in all of these very careful checks that inhibit us from be taking that kind of quick, innovative approach. And so we are constantly being pushed back and forth between the desire to move quickly and take on new technologies that will allow us to address these like really incredible hairy threats, but at the same time, balancing our responsibility to the American people. And it inherently, 
They do not go together, and we are constantly trying to find the right balance. So, Skylar, if I told you a big part of my job was that I often admire data-driven problems, in your experience, what does that mean? Without smiling. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) I would breathe deeply uh, before answering. Um, So uh, I I think maybe what you're trying to get at is that um, I... I have some qualms about the idea of simply admiring the problems related to technology. And what I mean by that is that it's important to analyze the problems and have a very clear view of um, of the factors that are involved and who owns it and how you might go about solving it. But I, I take issue with the idea of simply admiring it and then leaving it at that. And I think a lot of the time, sometimes it's easier to do that because you describe it in all of its beautiful facets and you can flex your intellectual worth just by admiring it and then you leave it. And then everybody's sitting there with the same problem that they had before and nothing was changed. So I have no problem with people who admire a problem as long as it is either paired with a some sense of how you would implement a solution, or it's paired with a healthy humility and respect for the people who have to. The biggest issue for me is whenever people roll into a room and describe the problem in this like beautiful and intricate way, and they just look at you with disdain and say, yes, it's so terrible. Can't you, can you <laughs> imagine us sitting with this problem and doing nothing? And to me, that is, that is the ultimate crime. You, you cannot sit and admire a problem and then not try to do something about it, or at least offer your support to the people who are responsible for it. So if you were to say that, I would say, thank you, Barry. What are you going to do about that beautiful data problem that you just described? And I'd probably, and that was a good answer. So I'd probably have to give you my can response and you know, I'll have to get back to you, Sky. <laughs> I, need to, I need to schedule. I need to talk to procurement and we'll talk in three months. But that's why I answered that question. Cause I think it's hugely important. You know, we face that, you know, in all walks of life and certainly in the private sector where there really is no end game and you have to make one, you have to make it actionable. So, so let's change course a bit. I know we're jumping all over. You know, if I had more time, obviously I'd spend hours uh, with you interviewing you. But, you know, when you talk about government and defense, what, and I want to think about this for a second, what is the importance to you in terms of diversity in recruiting for technical skills? I mean, uh, you, you can't overstate it. It, it. it is fundamental on a couple of different levels. So just kind of in general, Diversity is what is going to get you to a better decision point, full stop. That is, there's no question of that. There has been research done on this. There's, if you have a more diverse group in a room, you will come up with a better solution because you have different perspectives and different minds working on it. Um, that, that is absolutely what will uh, get you to the right place. Um, but I think that for me, I think it's particularly uh, important because we see this interesting dynamic um, of how diversity and inclusion is particularly strength of the United States. Because, you know, our whole, our whole spiel as a country is that we are just this mishmash of different places and different perspectives. And we have this wild potential because we have so many, um, ideas and perspectives feeding the pipeline, essentially, um, that we really come up with some wildly creative solutions. And we often think about this in comparison to, uh, some of our other com- competitors. So, for example, China takes a very centralized approach. They'll choose mm. the winners early. They kind of they have the ability to manage a lot of different parts of their country in a very particular way, and it means that in terms of execution, they are excellent. However, 
our benefit as a country is that we take this bit of a scattershot approach where we throw everything at the wall and people have this incredible creative, incredible creative energy um, because of that diversity that we leverage that allows us to maybe be a little bit slower on the execution, but the quality of what comes out of the back end is just exquisite. And so I think that it's like, a, it's a really great way of describing why diversity and inclusion is important because I, I personally believe that it is one of our country's best strengths if we are able to leverage it correctly. So, so let me ask you this then, uh, you know, pulling back a little bit, going back to technology and trends. Uh, so 10 years down the road, you know, looking at a roadmap, what technology or trends, you know, would you say, you know, to yourself or to a, a friend, you know, I'm glad I got ahead of that use case. In my field in particular, it really, um, I mean, the first one that comes to mind really is biotechnology. I think that it's, it's something that, um, we're floating around the edges of right now, but just the breadth of use cases combined with its ability to address some much broader issues like climate change means that biotech is just this like, it, it's such an enormous bucket, it's almost meaningless in a certain way for me to say it's biotechnology. But um, whether it's in terms of advanced manufacturing methods, whether it's in terms of um, regenerative buildings that you're going to need to, for, for particularly in the national security context, that is really important. It's just there is almost nothing that cannot be solved by um, by that particular mm. field. And we've had some really fascinating conversations and briefings about it that just suggest that that is, that is a particular field that will make a huge impact in the next decade. What would be one thing you'd want, you know, us to take away or remember from this podcast? And I know you do a lot of podcasts, but this one in particular, your favorite podcast, what do you want people to remember? From my, from my absolute favorite podcast, I would want folks to remember... Um, I mean, I, I hope it, I would hope that it comes across how much I care about this stuff. I mean, it's really whether my current position on the Hill, my past positions at the Department of Defense, um, this is not something that's just a job for me. This is, mm. this is, I'm in this because I, I think that it's incredibly important and I want to serve a larger cause. And there's just, I, I can't think of anything more important to do. And so what I would hope is that people hear that in the way that I talk about these issues and would feel encouraged themselves to contribute in whatever way is right for them. I think that national service comes in a lot of different ways, shapes and forms. It can be at a local level. It can be just supporting your local community. It can be, you know, if you're, if you're a teacher, you are doing God's work. If you're working in government, there are so many ways of doing it, but I just hope that people hear the enthusiasm that I have about my position and about contributing to this and similarly try to do something um, in their own lives. Uh, Sky, I can tell you with 100% confidence that uh, your passion definitely, definitely comes through. And I don't give a lot of compliments, so, you know, take it for what it's worth. Right. So having said that, then, what, what is one thing, just one thing that you absolutely love about your job now? I really appreciate the... Um, the ability that I have right now to be action oriented. So, um, and what Ooh. I mean by that is that, you know, I've always been, my work has always involved a heavy element of analysis and it's really important to have that piece. Um, and it's something that I have felt very confident in and have excelled at, but the implementation is where is where it's all at. And, and it doesn't matter if you have the best idea, if you can't do anything about it. And that has always been something that I've thought about and worried about when I'm pushing out analysis, whether it's in terms of reports or plans or whatever else, of if no one picks it up and does something about it, it is meaningless. 
And so right now I am in a position on the Hill to actually be the pointy edge of the spear, so to, so to speak, wow. um, in terms of implementing the policies that I have been thinking about and working on for so long. And so for me, that's, it's terrifying, <laughs> to be honest. It's just realizing just the sheer weight that comes with that. But um, the ability to just really do something about all of these hard problems that I care so much about is what makes me happy about this job. And that answer it, uh, makes me smile. It, do you ever think you'll come over to the private side, just you know, between you and I and a few few thousand listeners? I mean, what's your sense there? Yeah. Um, I I would, frankly, yes, uh, and I would do it briefly before I went back to both. <laughs> um, and the reason for that is I, I think it's a really important perspective. It's um, to me, it's about pulling the right skill sets to make you the most effective or and, you know the most dangerous. Essentially, I'm trying I'm trying to make myself as as productive and useful as I can. And private sector is an important piece. I'm constantly working with them. I'm trying to understand how we can um, make that interface between government and, and private sector a little bit more uh, easy for both sides. And so I think that an important part of that, if I'm really going to be effective at it, is having that experience myself. So sure. Wow. <laughs> That's a famous last words. So oh, one, one last question kind of keeps me up at night. Uh, kind, of, kind, of, kind of an old fogey. So Skynet, real or fake? <laughs> oh gosh, what a, what, a, uh, what a question. You're the perfect person to ask. I've been waiting I, years. <laughs> oh no. So I, what's fascinating is I spend a lot more of my time than I think I would have expected answering that question. <laughs> um, I, it actually is a fairly common one. And what I, what I try to at least offer to folks is that Skynet is a choice and not an inevitability. I think that people try to, I, I think people sometimes assume an end without remembering that we as people have a ton of input points along the road to get there. And so, um, is Skynet a possibility? Yes. If we all sit back and we don't think about the ethical and responsible standards that we all collectively need to take about AI. And if we don't actually, you know, hold ourselves to those standards and implement it in every single system that we roll out. Um, but I would hope that we collectively choose a different path. And I think we are right now. So for example, the Department of Defense rolled out a set of AI principles last year. Wow. Years ago, that it is that are very explicit about what is and is not appropriate use of AI. And we are now working to implement those principles. And we're working to work with our partners and make sure that our partners are taking on those same standards. Because I don't think that anybody wants that as the, <laughs> as the end state, right? I mean, um, we have agency. It's, it's, that's the beauty of it. We have agency. We have the ability to shape that outcome. It is not just this inevitable train that has left the station and we're going to this place where technology is going to be used for ill. We will always have a way of shaping it. And so that, that is what I offer to folks. And I hope that people get involved in that sense, right? Like you right. can you feel really strongly if you're worried about that, get involved. Work on those standards. Push your push your perspectives to international bodies, to governmental bodies, because you always have an ability to change it. You know, I, I kind of feel like I probably should have talked to you uh, in 1983, because uh, that would have saved me probably several decades of worry. So I, I appreciate that. I think and I do think that's that's a great answer, a responsible answer. And um, you know, unfortunately, Skylar, I, I feel like we are almost out of time. But you know, I want to say it's been a joy to have you on the show. Really. Thank you so much, Barry. I really appreciate you having me on. 
Yeah, and at some point we, we hopefully will have you back. And just real quickly for our listeners, you know, obviously, you know, if you enjoyed the podcast or didn't enjoy the podcast or have ideas about making us better, you know, please visit our, our feed in iTunes to rate, review, or subscribe. Or if you're listening on that other platform called Spotify, be sure to hit follow. We want your feedback. And I think that's it for us. That's another episode of The Big Rethink. Until next time, I'm Barry Ross.